0: Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast.
1: Lectins today, I think, have been highly problematic because many of the traditional foods that we are eating in mass, say, uh, corn, rice, soy, these are very high lectin foods. And if they're not prepared pre- properly, then this toxin slowly accumulates. And it's not a toxin you're going to feel. You're not going to feel it for a very long time.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, E Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grinn, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Mary Rudd. She's a seasoned medical nutritionist, researcher, and philanthropist who specializes in metabolic, immune, and nervous system disorders. She's the director of nutrition for Enable Your Healing, CaptainSoup.com, CowsForKids.com, The Rains Method, and The Back to Joy program. She travels the globe studying traditional diets and seeing patients online via her private practice. We discussed Mary's quest back to health, her morning routine, along with what we can learn from the tribes, the advantages of cold therapy, the GAPS diet for healing, and what is a lectin free diet. Anyways, I really enjoyed my interview with Mary. I know you will too. And thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin and I have Mary Ruddock on all the way from you're in Columbia right now. Chris. That's great. And how long are you there for?
1: Unknown at least two weeks, but maybe longer. We'll see.
0: Okay, excellent. And, uh, I know you do a lot of different things director of nutrition for, uh, enable your healing and, uh, do a lot of retreats. What, uh, what sort of got you into the health game and, and all the different roles that you play?
1: Oh, I fell into it. Like so many people do. I grew up as an athlete and I was teaching yoga. So I I thought I was in the health game, (laughs) but then I went (laughs) to, I went through a very serious illness that after contracting an infection, when I was living in the Bahamas that left me fully disabled for 12 years and really no Western medicine was helpful for that. So when, uh, when I was dealing with my organs going downhill and being bedbound, I started looking at diets more seriously Mm -hmm. And really questioning if my diet was as healthy as I thought. And it ended up after a lot of trial and error, about four years of trial and error and lots of different diets and lifestyle modifications, I finally got into remission through an old Russian diet. And that kind of spurred this whole journey of working in the field of nutrition. Uh, From there, I started working with clients and Then once I was in remission for a few years, I started to feel a lot more safe and I went back to traveling and I went back to do quite a bit of research to see if you know, people really are as healthy as they say in parts of the world. And, and if some of these things that have been written about different tribes are true. So I've been spending a lot of my time doing that. And that's why I'm in South America now. I'm hoping to go see the Embara tribe, which lives between uh, Colombia and Panama. And they're, they're very unique because they, they are one of the few tribes or communities that has never been pushed off of their land. You know, most of the communities we go and see, they may still be living their traditional way but they don't have access to their traditional food a lot of the time because they've been moved due to national park development or <laughs> urban development. And these folks are still there. So fingers crossed, I can get in. Uh, but if not, there's a lot of other communities to go and see.
0: Yeah, wow. So how do you go about finding the different tribes and, like, and them sort of allowing you into their life and to research and learn about them? How does that go about
1: a good question because that's one I always get socially so we might as well cover it on a podcast <laughs> really <laughs> yeah really it's just through a lot of research a lot of meet and greet it's wonderful when you travel as much as I do you end up meeting pretty fascinating people and through their connections a lot of times you can meet uh, different people so it's mostly through friendships And some of these groups are harder to get to than others. And, you know, my main goal when going to visit a community is to get a proper translator. That's really what I'm looking for. Right. Yes. So for instance, <laughs> when you're in Tanzania, when, when Brian and I were in Tanzania earlier this year, there's 127 different tribes or communities there and 127 different languages. So they have Swahili as a bridge language, but if you use Swahili to go visit a tribe, you're missing quite a lot. Mm-hmm. The translation's not going to be perfect. So I usually try to find someone who grew up right next to the village, was playing with the kids, knows the language uh, well enough to do, to have jokes <laughs> yeah, right, so yeah. a very strong commandment, and uh, and then we go from there, and that's that's typically how I go. So I don't tend to do the organized tours.
0: Wow, and uh, what 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 are some of the things you learned from like the Hadza um, that you can apply to yourself or for maybe clients and things like that?
1: Well, I think I learned a different definition of health. Uh, the the Hadza and the other groups have this independence from striving this full satisfaction. And I I don't just mean that emotionally. I mean, it physically, they don't really need water (laughs) or food. (laughs) I mean, they, they just are never in a sense of lack. And so, you know, they don't store food for the next day and they're not worried about it. They know they'll get food tomorrow and they're not hungry. So they're fine. And with water, they can go for ages on just nothing. Mm. Uh, Tim Noakes has written on this the best. And, and I would be a rookie in comparison to him on the topic of water and hydration. But it, it's quite fascinating because with each of these groups that I go to, although they, they each have different lifestyles and different diets and different cultural beliefs, they don't require much water. And mm. none of them are in food scarcity, which is the opposite of what we would think.
0: Yeah. Is it because they're so full in other areas of their lives that they don't feel like they need to be filled with food all the time? And, um, and, and they know that eventually they've probably gone days and days and days without food and water and been completely fine. So they don't really panic or anything like that.
1: I think they're very well balanced. I yeah. think they have so many amino acids, right? They have these great proteins, which make their feel good chemicals. And you've done fasting. So mm-hmm. when your, when your blood sugar is balanced and you fast, you don't even think about food, you forget yeah. about it. And when your blood sugar is imbalanced and you fast, it's, it's difficult. You're hangry, you're terrible to be around, you right, know, right. your mind is on a loop of what you can eat as soon as your fast breaks. And so I think they're actually just very chemically well balanced from the way that they eat and live. And, uh, and, you know, the emotional support helps as well. But I really think it's more the physical uh, balance that they have.
0: Yeah. And what, what were, what were the things that they what were the main things that they were eating? Um, and, and if they weren't drinking water, were they drinking something else?
1: No, not really. Oh. They, they all drink very small amounts, which is finally answering a question that I've had for a long time, because the disease that I had made me incredibly thirsty. It offsets hmm. your vasopressin and your uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic system. And so you're just constantly dehydrated and wanting to drink. And I remember going into antique stores and wondering like, this cannot be historically correct. All the antique stores have tiny glasses. And when you travel through Europe, water is rarely served. It's small amounts. What is going on in America where we're we're carrying around jugs of water and we're competing with who can drink more (laughs) each Mm. day. So I've always kind of wondered about this. I I think they're not dehydrated the way we are. And I think there's a few factors for that. For one, with the tribes like the Hadza who are primarily eating mostly meat at least three seasons of the year and fat, uh, that doesn't dehydrate the body, right? A carbohydrate requires four times as much water to process as a protein or a fat. So depending on what you're eating, you're gonna have a different water requirement. But what I think plays more into it, if I'm honest, and again, this is my theory, so this could be wrong, is that we're constantly stressed around the world and and not even in ways we realize, like light pollution and sounds and not being around family. We, We have a lot of stressors that we wouldn't think of as emotional stress. And when we're stressed, we get dehydrated. So I think that's really playing into our higher need for water in addition to the modern diet.
0: Interesting. And um, is this something you've implemented with yourself where you're like, wow, I don't need to drink as much water? Or because uh, you know, it's, it's such a mixed message, right? That we hear.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think for me, it's really changed through the years. If I I think if you're thirsty, you should drink. I mean, being dehydrated is a terrible thing. And most people I meet have very imbalanced electrolytes. So they're not uptaking water into the cell properly. So Mm. I see a great deal of dehydration. So it's certainly not that we should just stop drinking. But I have noticed the healthier that I get. And the longer I'm out of illness, the less I need water. So for instance. I never would have even gone to the grocery store without a bottle of water before. And now I'll get on a 13 hour flight and not think about it and not have water so i can go longer periods of times and sometimes it's more challenging like there was one episode i was hiking mount olympus and i didn't know i was going to be hiking mount olympus so i didn't bring anything (laughs) and and i was very thirsty we left in the morning so i hadn't had water yet and so i just practiced the russian method of dry fasting and that that was a mental challenge but it worked whereas usually it's more natural but if i'm thirsty i will drink water
0: (laughs) And, and how do you like I know you're traveling all over. How do you maintain a healthy lifestyle to travel? I think that's like a common question that comes along with a lot of people is what, what things do you do to prep yourself to live a healthy lifestyle while you're traveling?
1: Oh, it's a great question. I start off every day exactly the same. So I maintain a morning routine and I build my life around that. So that really helps to keep my stress low. And it's a good barometer for me to see if I'm getting tired, if there's any burnout, if I need some rest, if I need to not do so many tours and take a day off. So I work out every morning, I meditate, I do a gratitude journal, I get outside. If it's nice, I'll go for a walk or I'll do light therapy, cold shower. So I have a big morning routine that I do every day. And then that honestly keeps me happy because when you, (laughs) I don't know about you, but if you start your day thinking of nothing, but what you're appreciating, it's hard to look at anything you're going through as a negative. And with, with my lifestyle being such a blessing and such a choice, I mean, this is this is like a dream come true for a a girl who was in bed for so many years. Like this, this is amazing. So it's a little hard to be like, Oh man, it's real tough to be in Columbia right now. (laughs) I can't really complain. So that really helps. But the other ways that I maintain my health is through what I eat. So I try to keep my stress low through reframing rather than changing the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then what I eat. So if I'm in a tropical region like I am right now, I'm gonna be deep in ketosis. I'm gonna have like a 6.0 of ketosis. And I do intermittent fasting, and I've done that for a very long time. That's really helpful for the immune system. i'm not rigid about either of these things so if i'm suddenly hungry one morning i will eat breakfast but uh but on the whole i do the intermittent fasting and then i maintain deeper levels of ketosis if i'm in a tropical region with lots of infections like i'm in the rainy season right now which is when all the bad stuff is here so if i'm in france i may not be i may go out of ketosis i don't need that antiviral quality as much
0: Right. And then as far as, uh, well, I love hearing that you have such a regimented, <clears throat> uh, morning routine. Um, because like you said, if you, if you start the day, right, it's hard for it to, you know, things can come up. Right. But when you, when you really get off to the, like I was just in California and just getting up and walking along the, the water and the beach and jumping in the, in the water, which no one else was going in the water. I was jumping in. It was like 50, probably mid fifties. So I was like, wow, what a great way to start the day. I mean, um, Do you do a lot of cold showering or cold plunging where your places you go?
1: So I've never done cold plunging. I would love to, but I've done cold showers for the last 15 years. Okay. So, yes. Which is easy because
0: everyone can do that. You're not always going to have a cold tub to jump into, at least, right?
1: Exactly. I've never had that. And I think wow. because I move around so much, I've never been able to find it. And then when <laughs> I was when I was sick and learning about cold therapy, I I honestly learned about it through Ayurveda. And uh, and so there were no cold therapy centers. Now there's lots of them. I, I'm really yeah. behind the ball on that, but I just do the cold therapy and then cold dips in the ocean whenever I'm by an ocean.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such a great way to, I mean, you don't, you go, you do that, you don't need any caffeine <laughs> to start your day.
1: No, right? no. And, you know, that's actually part of why I started it. So, mm. with the condition that I had, not only could I not tolerate a hot shower, but the cold would wake me up when nothing else did. So, there were many days where I would take six, eight cold rinses a day just to get like a little boost you know, as I was getting better, it's a great little energy starter. If you're tired.
0: Yeah. It's such a great, mm-hmm. like pack. That's easy. Everyone could do it. Everyone could take a cold yeah. shower, you know?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. And for, for the ladies out there, it's not like you have to get your hair wet. You know, you can go <laughs> neck down. Right. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's funny you bring that up. My wife's like, I was, I would go in in the ocean and in, in the morning it was cold and she, she was all up for doing it, but she didn't want to get her her, her head wet, but I will yeah. say it is a little bit of a difference when you get your head wet, um, when it you're is. doing a cold plunge, as opposed to keeping your head above water, but
1: it's that's a... so much more refreshing, but oh my <laughs> gosh, does it take an hour or two to dry her hair? So I understand. I hear it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And then the journaling I love and meditation, how do you implement that? Do you do, do you have a gratitude journal?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I take it everywhere with me. I use this Remarkable and I write for about half an hour a day uh, what I'm appreciating and what I'm grateful for because I really found when I was sick that I could have a beautiful life despite the illness if I framed it differently and if I got my head in the right space. And so I've kept that and it's it's really kept my stress low, whereas otherwise this could be considered a high stress life. So I, th- I can't imagine it's something I'll ever abandon.
0: Yeah. And, um, and you talked about, you you know, your illness, it was how many, how many years it was 12 years, did you say
1: 12 years Mm -hmm.
0: and, uh, and you got out of it just from changing your perspective and changing the way you ate, would you say? Yes.
1: Yeah. Lifestyle and diet. It was really both. I had been implementing the lifestyle things for about four years before I found the appropriate diet, but had I not been doing those, I don't think I would have gotten through the diet that healed me because it was it was so incredibly difficult to do that diet. It's simple, but it was very, very hard. And so if I didn't have the emotional fortitude and the mental fortitude brought through from the lifestyle things, I would have failed. So they were both very necessary.
0: And what, and you said it was a Russian diet? I'm just curious. As yeah, to,
1: it was yeah. a Russian diet. It was a Russian soup diet created by Dr. Natasha McBride called okay. the GAPS diet. Oh. Uh, it's called either gut and physiology syndrome or gut and psychology. And I did it you can do a hundred different versions of the diet. There's some main principles like zero starches. So you don't feed bacteria and these kind of things. But I did a, a unusual version. I did a ketogenic version where you just eat uh, soup uh, for each meal.
0: Wow. And uh, I noticed you have a company, is it called captain soup?
1: Yeah, it's not my company, but okay. I, I make their recipes. <laughs>
0: Oh well, and and did that come about because of your whole what happened with yourself and 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 using soup as healing? You you wanted
1: to, you know, what's so funny about that? So in. You know, I never met anyone who had my condition for several years, and then I never met anyone else who uh, healed themselves through soups without the guidance of someone until about eight years into remission. And I'm living in Eugene and I have a brick and mortar, Eugene, Eugene Oregon, brick and mortar office, you know, where I'm seeing clients. And one of my clients introduces me to Brian, who's uh, Captain Brian uh, of Captain Soup. And he had healed himself through eating nothing but soups as well. And so she introduced us and we immediately hit it off and started playing in the kitchen and creating new recipes. So it's been a really fun, playful project and a great collaboration. But uh, no, it didn't. It actually didn't come out of my story. It was more of a unique kismet meeting of two souls that had a similar journey.
0: Wow. And uh, and, and actually, my thought regarding soup is that would be great if you're traveling a lot to have that bring it with you, right? Because all those soups the, and they all, you know, you can bring them pretty well. You got to keep them frozen though, right? Yeah, it's not don't.
1: hard though. I'll tell you what I, cause I have a lot of, uh, clients who, who need to be on the soups as well. And they're pretty easy to travel with. Mm-hmm. And for Brian, the reason why he did the soups was because he was in the military at the time. And so he would fly hundreds of jars of soup to whatever country he was in. And then he right. would eat that for me now though, I have to say you know, in other countries, kitchens, bathrooms, they're so different. Even in uh, kind of fancy countries, the kitchens are tiny and there's often not an oven. You have the stove. So it's much easier to eat one pot meals. So it's great to go to the grocery store, get things, just make a pot of soup and then eat off of that. So it's it's mm. it saves you dishes. It saves you time. And it is easy with traveling.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's great. It does make a lot of if someone that's trying to get into healthy eating. I feel like soups is a good way to go. Um, right. you know, cause it takes time. One thing I find actually with myself is sometimes like I, I eat a lot of carnivore keto is, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, you can, I'm sort of a fast eater, but like with soup it takes time, <laughs> like you, you sort of slow yourself down and it's more intentional and, you know, um, yeah. In the winter months, I like to make a lot of soups and stuff. So it's, I, I love the fact that you're, you're doing that with that, with that company. I'll definitely put a link, um, in the show notes for that. Um oh, thank you. And I notice you have an educational course regarding a lectin-free keto diet. Is this something that you align yourself with um on a day to day basis?
1: Yeah, so yeah, I, I personally avoid the lectins unless I'm in a restaurant. I'm not rigid about it. But with my clients, I most certainly do. Yeah, my policy when I, you know, when I first started working was I didn't want to sell anything because I wanted people to know if I was recommending something that was genuine. So when Captain Soup approached me, it was different because it was like, mm. well, I know that works. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I got so busy. My wait list was so long. So I started to try to put my knowledge into video courses because a lot of people are like me. If I read a book, I'll do it. Uh, Whereas other people need handholding. And those are the ones who come to my practice, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been really working over the last few years on getting as much of this uh, documented for people that are self-starters. So I have a practitioner training program where I teach doctors, nutritionists, and all of that what Mm. I do. And then uh, they can take that to their patients and their clients. And then I have a few different courses for things like long COVID and dysautonomia. And then I have the general ketogenic lectin-free program, which I did with Courtney Johnson. And that is just an excellent overall course, which goes through history of like cholesterol. It's a more knowledge-based course. So if someone wants the knowledge, in addition to the how-to for that specific section.
0: Yeah. Wow. I think that's great. I think it's all about educating yourself, right? Yes. you don't really, um, I just had a uh, Dr. Bradley Campbell. He's, um, uh, holistic, um, doctor in the area that I live in and I've gone to him a bunch and, you know, he has all this education, but a lot of times the doctor that you're going to probably doesn't know a lot, uh, just a traditional doctor, not, you know, nothing against them, but they're just not trained the, the same way. Like a holistic practitioner would be trained, you know?
1: Yes. Yeah. They just don't have it. We have a different, different fields of knowledge. And so if we can merge that, then we can get this to the patients a little faster. I'd, I'd really like this to be household and <laughs> household knowledge. That's kind of my goal <laughs> so that people, <laughs> if they get sick, they can turn it around quickly.
0: Yeah. And, um, what about, I'm, I'm just curious, and you have another, um, company that you're aligned with cow it's nonprofit, right? Cows for kids.
1: Yeah, it's not a nonprofit. Actually, we tried to set it up as that. And instead, we ended up doing it as a project. So what we do is we just pull money from donations and then 100% go towards the animals for the villages. When Brian and Jay and Draco and I all toured through Africa this last year and went to all those different tribes and communities, the ones that we went to that were still in perfect health were They're most likely the last generation if something isn't done about their perfect health because the kids are mandated now to go to government regulated schools, which we would think are good, right? (laughs) But it's not great because at the schools, the government is feeding them and it's not their traditional diet. Uh, There's all sorts of other issues about that as well, but that would probably take some time to go into. So, what this organization does or, or what this project does is we pool money and then we buy animals so that the different villages can have their traditional diet in the school so if it's a chaga school they're having a chaga diet if it's a maasai school they're having a maasai diet mm-hmm. we give the first round of animals to the village they're already raising the animals it's their traditional diet and then those animals have babies so it's not something that you have to keep funding right it's just a starter uh, so we're doing that and we've already started actually so the we've fed 400 kids in uh, in zambia just in the last month. And, mm-hmm. and that's been really good in a, sm- in a small village. Uh, and now we're working on the Maasai Village. So we have the funding for four of the main. And then I'd like to take this worldwide so that we can continue to keep these pockets of areas that are in perfect health. So we do that. And it's a lot of volunteer time on Brian and I, because we don't take any of the money we pay for own flights. We pay for everything ourselves, but, uh, but we're also including a school educational program to counteract this food pyramid, this vegetable oil movement, this kind of thing, for them to understand the importance of their own traditions and that's it. So they'll be educating themselves. We're just going to help them implement that with the children and see like You know, this food that our ancestors have been eating, there's a reason for it. And this keeps us healthy in this way. And this is why we're strong and and all of that so that they have some of that knowledge and it doesn't get lost.
0: Wow. That's a great cause. Um, so are you seeing that with a lot of the tribes that you visit, that they're just getting influenced by Western society and eventually these tribes will just get a lot of maybe the, you know, which is sort of the sad thing, get a lot of the disease that's happening um, in, you know, in the States and things like that.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that is what's happening as they're getting pushed off of their lands. They're really being influenced by modern foods Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the illnesses are slow to creep in. So what I usually see is kind of European history in the last 300 years. (laughs) So if you go back 300 years ago, you'd see people getting infections, but they still lived into old age. It was common to die from old age, even in our grandparents and great grandparents generation, it was pretty common to die from old age. And when illnesses start creeping in, it's usually a few generations in on the modern diet, at least one, but often two to four generations in. And that would be like the diabetes and things like that in old age. So we're talking like above 70, you'll start to see that but they still tend to live to about 90. Mm -hmm. And then there's a huge shift that changes after that, where the chronic illness sets in. The neat thing to watch though, is that when they're on their traditional diets and living in their traditional way, they are immune to the infections. They don't yeah. get the African sleeping sickness, the malaria, any of these kinds of things. They don't die in childbirth. So you can really see the pattern. And it's, it's quite clear, the more places I go to, it's the same pattern over and over and over again, which I think is pretty empowering for us to say that we can do a lot with our food so that we're not susceptible to both chronic disease, but also immediate uh, colds, flus, COVID, <laughs> things yeah, like that. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, um, also too, like the difference, I was just talking to someone else that I met on, on my trip. Um, the difference between the regulation that's being done in the States versus or versus Europe, like Europe is banning all these, you know, artificial flavorings and, 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 you know, just colorings and things that go into the foods as opposed to the United States is like a little bit behind from that. You can eat certain things in Europe and it's fine. And then you eat the same thing in the United States and you might not feel good
1: totally different and I think it's cultural the more I travel the more I see the archetypes the countries and how each has this kind of beautiful benefit and then downfall the beautiful benefit of most of Europe is that they're still rooted in tradition they really honor traditional foods and tradition the downside of that is that invention isn't great right you're not encouraged to do new things whereas in America Oh, you want to invent something? Great. What was your background? We don't care. Are you doing something awesome now? This is fantastic, right? right. We really like that kind of invention, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the loss of tradition. With that, we're allowing all these modern foods and we get excited about anything new like a beyond meat or a food sure. coloring. And so I think it's very cultural, actually, instead of conspiratorial as to why we have this problem with our food and, uh, and why we've really lost touch with any sort of tradition in, uh, in, in ways of eating.
0: Yeah, L- loss of tradition, perhaps, and then driven by the dollar, perhaps a little bit. too. Oh, right?
1: completely. I mean, <laughs> we are a financial system and the yeah. food industry is an industry. And by definition, industry, its goal is financial. So yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I just did a small micro podcast on, on how snacking is becoming like, a, well, not becoming, it has grown, you know, in the seventies, people were just having two, three square meals. Now, you know, big food wanted you to think that snacking was actually healthy and that, you know, you should have six meals a day. And obviously that's just a good environment for them to sell more food.
1: (laughs) Yes. And it's one of the worst things we can do for our health, because even if those aren't unhealthy snacks, even if they're not junky snacks, every time we eat, no matter how low carb it is, it's spiking your insulin which sets you up for insulin resistance. And that can turn into type one, two, three diabetes, along with all the other conditions associated with that kidney disease and many of the chronic diseases of age. So the snacking is really one of the hugest problems that I see.
0: Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. what would you say? I th- um, some of the, you talk about like the blue zone myths mm-hmm. that go on, what, uh, you know, the blue zone was studied a while back, right. It was a, a regions of land, um, that, um just showed like how they ate cuz they like were like the l- longest living areas um but what are some of the myths that came out of that um i know there were some misconceptions regarding that
1: there's so many i mean <laughs> one <laughs> let's take the one in greece cuz i spent the most time there uh in ikaria or Ik- ikaria as we would say mm. it's an island in greece and and to be honest it's not that different from a lot of greece if you go to most greek villages people are very old when they die. (laughs) They're very old. So I'm not so sure it's the oldest living place in Greece, but it is the one that was spotlighted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were highlighted as this kind of like bean eating culture and the Greeks honestly eat it all. They eat all the food. So you can't classify them under any diet, but they missed a lot of things on the questionnaire through loss of translation. Like they didn't ask them about dairy consumption, which is massive. They eat a block of cheese between each meal for each person. All right. Uh, they all mm-hmm. make their own cheeses as well. So that's, that's a large part of their calories. Um, they did not factor in several of the animals that they eat on a regular basis. The Icarians hunt pork and meat is abundant. There seems to be this uh, pervasive myth that meat is a hard to get thing in the world and that certainly people would have lived off of crops instead. And that's actually the opposite in regions like this. Crops are very hard to grow on an island like this. You're not going to have wheat. You're going to be eating things like sheep and goats and fish and dairy and wild greens that grow three times, three seasons of the year, mushrooms, fruit in the summer. That's what you're going to be eating. So, and some root vegetables. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of misconceptions. People really just get kind of, it's like a, an earworm that... Uh, That meat was hard to get or animal food was hard to get. And everywhere I go, it's actually quite the opposite. So, uh, so there it was quite meat heavy. And to be honest, I didn't expect it to be, I, I thought it would be more accurate from the book. I really did because Greeks do eat a lot of carbohydrates throughout the mainland. They're not a low carb culture. They do nose to tail eating always. <laughs> there's mm. always liver and, and you eat the eyeball and all of this. And then uh, there's honey, there's yogurt. I mean, it's, it's nose to tail eating with seasonal plants and that's yeah. normal. So I expected to see a lot more beans and things like that. And so we stayed a lot in houses. We went to dinners. What surprised me the most were the restaurants i i thought the restaurants would cater to this kind of blue zone ideology and so i thought okay well maybe in the houses they eat like this because the grandma is cooking Mm -hmm. but maybe in the restaurants we're going to see more of the beans and and all of these things we've been told and even there it was like pork head stew and liver as the special so um Mm -hmm. so it was really quite quite different and i don't i don't think it was intentional i think it's just when people haven't had an eye for studying food history, it's easy to, uh, to misunderstand what's happening. For instance, in the blue zone in Costa Rica, one thing that nobody looked at is what is was the cooking fat that will tell you a lot about a civilization. What, what I was they're just cooking in, in, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just in Mexico visiting some of the Aztec ruins and our guide was talking about how they ate a lot of plants there. And I was like, okay, what did they cook in? and he's like oh duck fat and i was like okay so they were eating duck and he's like oh yes yes but (laughs) they never talk about that right right? so if you go into what fat is being used you can find a lot out like within the costa rica that i just mentioned that blue zone it was pork fat that was the traditional fat so so you can see that it's um small things can be missed that make a big difference as to whether you think it's plant-based animal-based or a real mix which is often the case
0: Right. So some of them were eating plants, but they were cooking it in, in duck fat. So it was sort of both, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you, it can go a long way if, if you cook for yourself or if you, um, even if you go to a restaurant and you ask them what they cook in, like I was at a restaurant last night, I don't love to go out to dinner, but sometimes, you know, it's a social thing. Um, I just asked them to saute whatever I was, I think I was, they were sauteing like um, broccoli or mushrooms, like I just asked them to sauteed it in, in butter and not oil. And, you know, it's just those little things that you can do that can go a long way.
1: Huge way. Yeah. Because our, our fat informs our cellular membrane. And if your listeners have not gone into the cellular membrane, get ready to get your mind blown because your fatty <laughs> acid layer there is very important. So, so yeah, small things like that, getting food steamed, cooked in butter will go a very long way.
0: Yeah. And, um, why don't we touch a little bit on, um, lectin free eating? Um, I think, I mean, I, this is not something I probably even do on purpose, but I, you know, I've gotten away from grains and things like that. Maybe explain to the audience a little bit about what that's all about.
1: Be having to. So, lectins are one of the plant toxins. Plants have many different ways to defend themselves, and some are pesticides, some are herbicides, some are to protect themselves against uh, mammals. Lectins are to protect against mammals, Mm -hmm. and they're a short-living toxin that goes into our body. It's a sticky protein, so it will stick to the the walls of our gut, and in layman's terms, it will pierce a hole. Mm -hmm. Now, There are good and bad lectins. So I'm not talking about all lectins here. There's not a word to discern the two. Like there's a lectin in avocado that doesn't hurt us. So so not all of them are bad, but they're sticky proteins and they deregulate the nervous system and the immune system. So they can cause a lot of problems there. Now in traditional societies, all the ones that I've studied, they either didn't eat lectin-rich foods or if they did, which many did, they had cooking methods or preparation methods to remove the lectin. Furthermore, they did a further step, which was eat another food alongside with it that would actually block the lectin. It would stick to the lectin and pull it through the guts so that it didn't touch your cells. So lectins today, I think, have been highly problematic because many of the traditional foods that we are eating in mass, say, uh, corn rice soy these are very high lectin foods and if they're not prepared prep properly then this toxin slowly accumulates and it's not a toxin you're going to feel you're not going to feel it for a very long time and right. uh but when when it creates a problem it's a real problem now typically lectins were in and out it's an in and out toxin it's water soluble it goes through the kidneys so if you have kidney disease it's not a good idea to eat these guys but they they go in and out pretty quickly. However, since we have been bringing in foods from all over the world and importing foods from different regions, we now have another issue. That is that we are combining plant toxins that really should not be put together. So for instance, if we were just eating lectins, that would be one thing, but when you combine a lectin with a solanine that's found in say tomato or potato, that solanine is fat toxic, and that's going to stay in your body for 30 to 90 days. So now you've got a lectin that stays in your body for 30 to 90 days. So the loss of the food processing of our ancestors has really caused a huge problem because we, we could say we're eating a similar food, but what it's doing to our body is completely different.
0: Yeah. And some people, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously are more sensitive than others to to lectins, um, probably, and it's probably, uh, based on their background, their tradition, you know, um, you know, like for example, like nightshades, right. Um, uh, some people are more sensitive to those. They probably grown up eating tomatoes or whole lives and eggplants. And it's not an issue, which you probably see in some cultures, right?
1: No, actually oh. like my fiance okay. is Greek. <laughs> He's okay. Greek and he grew up eating a tomato salad every day. He was so proud of it. He had one of the worst cases of psoriasis I've ever seen. He's oh. had it for 30 years. It's was just bleeding and weeping. And he pulled out just the, the t- lectins. That's it. We're, we're traveling, right? It's He couldn't do the diets I prescribe, And it reversed in three months and he's never had it come back. So uh, even if you grew up eating some of these foods, it doesn't mean you're safe. Right, uh, I true. think... I think it comes down to people's detox systems. When, when I get people in my office with chronic illness, usually their liver detox systems don't work quite as well as others or their kidneys. And that has a lot to do with your microbiome and a number of other things coming into it. It also matters what you're eating with those foods. So for instance, food combining is actually very important and we've, we've lost what's important with this when we step out of traditional diet. So, take the Japanese diet, the traditional Japanese diet. They used to eat taro as their starch, and then they moved to white rice and pork and fish. Well, if you eat white rice and pork and fish, you're fine. But if you just happen to not like pork, which some people don't, and so you eat the white rice and you don't eat the pork, you end up with beriberi, which is a thiamin deficiency because the white rice has a thiamin binding protein. So there's lots of things with traditional food combining that we didn't understand. And honestly, that we probably still don't understand that if yeah. as soon as we step out of those patterns, we can get into trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> And you talk about food combining, is there, do you have any thoughts around, like, I've heard this, I've heard mixed opinions on this, but like eating fruit alone or, or mixing it with other things. What are your thoughts around that?
1: I'm, you know, I know a lot of people are really jumping into the fruit bandwagon these days. I'm still not. (laughs) I think if you're healthy, it's fine if it's seasonal, but I've seen fructose do quite a bit. to livers and I've seen people reverse their liver disease by pulling it out. So um, I'm not on this big fructose uh, bandwagon. I'm also not anti it if you're healthy. But with with things like fruit, I think timing is the most important thing. So for instance, if you were to have a bowl of say mangoes in the morning, it's gonna spike your blood sugar and cause an inflammatory cycle for the day. Whereas if you have lunch at noon, whatever that lunch is, as long as it's lower carb, and then you have that same bowl of mangoes at 3 p.m., it's just gonna give you a molehill. So I think timing is very important. And many regions that I go to that are fruit consuming, say, the Greeks in the summer, they eat a lot of fruit in the summer. It's typically their desserts, right yeah. we don't they don't think of it as a breakfast food or an all- day food. It's a dessert. Right. And so uh, the timing of that, I would say, is quite important.
0: and honey is pretty is pretty popular, right? with the Greeks or with some of the it is. tribes? yeah,
1: oh, absolutely. But that again, is seasonal. And typically, if we do these foods seasonally, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, what would you say? um if something is a common question i ask a lot of guests you know if someone's you know want to get their body back to what it once was you know like 10 15 years ago and they've tried a different a lot of different things what would you say some good first steps would be for that individual to to start with
1: i would start with a morning routine where you get up each morning and you do something to reduce your stress so whether that's a gratitude journal a meditation And then I would also get outside, even if you live in a cold, cloudy region, I'd be outside for at least half an hour. The light in our eyes gets our dopamine and serotonin going, and you're going to need that for any kind of lifestyle change. So I would do those two things first, then I would personally reduce carbohydrates. Uh, anything under a hundred is going to be helpful. So even if you don't want to go full ketogenic or do some of these more hard, more difficult diets, Mm -hmm. I'm yet to go to any regions that eat more than that. And I think if if we go over a hundred or so, we start to get into the inflammatory cycles, the immune deprivation, those kind of things, but also because we want to fill ourselves up and not be hungry. So if we're trying to lose weight and get strong, we want to eat foods that trigger the satiety hormone and that's fat and protein. Now you can get there through eating a good amount of protein, or you can get there through eating a lot of fat, but if you eat a lot of carbs, you're going to be hungry. And if you do the carbs with the fat, you're going to gain the weight. So it's easier to reduce the carbs, go for the protein and the fats. And then it comes a bit more naturally with less willpower.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I always talk about pri- prioritizing protein in your meals, right? Yes,
1: always. Yeah, yeah. also because protein makes all our feel good chemicals, right? So if we're not getting those amino acids, we're going to be grumpy, moody, and then we need to emotionally eat, which we don't want.
0: Right, we don't want that. Yeah. No. <laughs> and also, if you're doing some fasting, which I know you do some, uh-huh. um, especially because of travel, I'm sure. Like, uh, like when I was traveling to California, like you're not going to eat the plain food. So it's a good time to fast, right? right?
1: <laughs> it's a perfect time to fast. Yeah. My flights are always fasting times. Even if it's a 70 hour flight, I, I just do fasting and I try to do a three-day fast, usually either once a month or once a season, uh, but pretty regularly. And then the 20 hour fast almost daily.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have like a four hour eating window.
1: Yeah. It's not rigid, but yeah, right. it's just kind of happened naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this was great, Mary. We could talk forever. Um, I'm glad we got together and you're in Columbia and I'm in Chicago and we can make this happen. Um, oh, me too. <laughs> what's the best place for people to learn about, you know, where you're traveling and all the things that you have to offer?
1: So definitely my website, enableyourhealing.com, is a great place to start. And then I do have an Instagram. It's disorganized. I'm not <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're not a but professional Mar- Instagram. I'm not yeah. a
1: professional Instagrammer. I'm too busy in the office with my clients, but one day I'll make it pretty. But that does keep you up on where I am. And that's Mary Reddick CNC. And then I have a YouTube channel, just Mary Reddick again. And for that you'll see I link all my podcasts. So this podcast will be there. And you can find my other podcasts there as well. Excellent.
0: Great. Well, um, loving all the travels and everything you're doing. I'm definitely going to check out the cows for kids. I think that's Thank such you. a, that's such a great movement. And, um, I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It was so nice chatting with you.
0: <laughs> hey, get lean, e clean nation. Are you a man between the ages of 40 and 60 years old, looking to lose inches around your waist, have significantly more energy throughout the day and gain muscle all while minimizing the risk of injuries? Well. I'm looking for three to five people to work one-on-one with in my Fat Burner Blueprint Signature Program, which I've developed by utilizing my 15 years experience in the health and fitness space. This program is designed specifically for those committed to making serious progress towards our health goals over the next six months. We will focus on sleep, stress, nutrition, meal timing, and building lean muscle. If this sounds like a fit for you, email me. At brian at with the subject line blueprint. That's brian at briangrin.com with the subject line blueprint. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean Eat clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine, and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.